Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast, your association's no-fluff playbook to navigating and thriving in Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Each week, we bring expert insights to help you and your association stay ahead of the curve. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Association 4.0 podcast. My name is Sharon Rice, and I'm the Managing Director of Business Strategy for .org Source, an association consultancy. Today, my guest is Jennifer Pitts. Jennifer is the Vice President of Products, Programs, and Certification at the National Association for Healthcare Quality. Jennifer is a strategy-focused leader with an extensive background in growing the business of education and certification, as well as developing talent. She's worked for NACU since 2015, but before that, she was the Director of Educational Program Development at the American College of Chess Physicians. Welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Sharon. Glad to be here. Excellent. So let's have you tell us a little bit about your background at NACU specifically. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I started in 2015. Uh, it's actually been almost eight years. It'll be eight years in June. I can't believe it. Um, and when I first started at NACU, I had about, uh, I would say, two direct reports and probably about mm, two to $3 million of uh, P&L that I was responsible for, uh, predominantly in the education side of the business. Um, you know, I came to NACU to sort of build um you know, build on on my expertise and help build the organization from that perspective. Um, by fast forward now, um, I have ten FTEs and I have about uh, nine million dollars of uh, PNL responsibility. So a lot of that growth has been in um, predominantly in new product development, but also you know looking at building channels um, for our business and so moving away from just individuals, but selling into academics and organizations. Um, you know, so myself and an entire team has really been working on that um, throughout the last uh, eight years. So uh, we're excited uh, for the future here at NACU. So Jennifer and I have known each other for quite some time now. And one of the things that's been interesting, I think, Jennifer, in our relationship is that, and as I'm listening to you talk, it really has struck me that we followed in some ways some parallel paths. You're now responsible for most of the front um office revenue that's coming in mm -hmm. to NACU. And I had a similar experience when I was working with Apex ASCM. And it's also interesting to me how, you know, we can do the same work, but for different associations, the actual association body of knowledge starts to impact the way that we do our association management work. And so um, a little while ago, I think we did a blog post with you, an article and one of the things we talked about in that article is how you take a quality first approach to the NACU business. And of course, NACU, the NACU body of knowledge is all about healthcare quality. So tell us a little bit about that strategy of quality first as it applies to association management. Yeah, I would say quality first for us is, you know, starts really with the planning of everything that we do. Um, and it starts with thinking about you know, where we want to go with the end result of whatever particular product or service that we're working on. And so that shows up. Uh, we, we're very big into planning. Uh, we're very big into making sure that we have great project plans. We have documentation. We make sure that um, while we want, to, we want to, you know, deliver the best quality product, we want to have the experience for both our staff and our members to be a very good experience. And we want it to be easy and we want it to be 
fun, right? And we want you know it to something that we can continue to grow um, with and continue to replicate. I'm not saying that that's not done all the time in associations for sure, um, but I think the disciplined approach to really putting together and hardwiring project management and dis that discipline into your work um, definitely does, I think, take it in a different direction and make sure that you have those quality checks along the way to make sure you end up, you know, staying on budget, staying on time, and making sure that, you know, for all of us that our volunteers have a good experience um, as well. So one of the things that NAQ is extraordinarily good at in, in terms of it, uh, serving its members and its customers is um, kind of putting together the quality toolkit, right? I, I hear a lot about the, when I'm working with NAQ, the quality toolkit. And I have also just observationally working with you noticed that um, you take some of those same tools that are part again of the, the member body of knowledge and apply them to association management. One that I um, stole from you <laughs> as an example <laughs> is the SBAR. Can you give it, 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 talk to us a little bit about SBAR and how you use that tool, that quality tool in your work as an association? Absolutely. So an SBAR is the, uh, stands for situation, uh, background, assessment and recommendation to think about that for a minute. <laughs> and it is a quality tool. It's not just used in healthcare quality, but it's used um, across many industries. And it's, I don't know if some, some of our listeners might also um, do sort of a, 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 your main idea first. There's sort of that idea where it's like, you're really, you know, you're really trying to, to create a communication in which you get everybody who you're communicating to where you are at on the same page. And so it's a really great tool. We use it um, when we're trying to convey a, a, a new idea to a group of people. So what is the situation that we're talking about? What are some background points that people need to know, especially, you know, if you're doing something cross-functionally, you know, you're working with different departments, not everybody has the same background as you. So what are the background, what are the assessment points? So what have you considered already, right? Are you considering, um, you know, are there legal implications? Are there governance implications? Are, you know, whatever you're communicating about and then recommend recommendations. And it may not necessarily even be, uh, you're recommending, you know, something, but you're recommending you need to make a decision and who needs to be a part of it. So we use it um, all the time. I mean, I probably get two to three SBARs a week from my staff, even very simple ones. Um, and I'm able to make decisions pretty quickly because I know that they've considered the background. They know, you know, they've given me information and that I can coach them if maybe they haven't considered something. I can, you know, chime in, but then if not, then I can, you know, move things along. So we use it for very simple and very complex. Um, situations yeah. here at NACU. And, and I think that's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, so I, I, you know, coming out of a manufacturing association like ASCM, of course, we had, you know, a similar quality toolkit because a lot of the quality tools were developed, you know, to support manufacturing um, and, and lean as well. And then what NACU has done extraordinarily well is adapt those for the healthcare environment. And, you know, it also occurs to me the way that you're using those tools at NACU, you're now adapting those for the association environment. And this, to me, feels like an innovative approach to association management, because I think we all try to do quality work. But, you know, what NACU does for healthcare is systematizes quality healthcare. And you're also in application of that systematizing quality for association management. Does it feel to you too like this is somewhat innovative? Yeah, I mean, I, I do. I think um, we have a, 
we've developed a culture in our organization where that is part of, um, you know, it's part of our hiring practices. It's part of our interviewing. It's part of our onboarding. Um, it's part of, you know, how we manage. So we also, you know, one of the things we do at, um, at NACU, and we do this with our leadership, we do this with our volunteers and ourselves is, you know, we kind of have that, again, that quality mindset and tools is we do a plus delta. So plus delta is also another tool, very simple tool um, that you use as sort of a, you know, to kind of get feedback from people. So it's kind of like, what did you do well? That's the plus, um, you know, you're doing a situational debriefing. People use that in debriefing a lot. Um, and then what could be improved? And then those are, you know, you take that feedback and put that back into your process. Um, and I think those kind of things work really well for associations because that's what we do every year, right? We have a lot of different stakeholders that we need to uh, to get feedback from. We are always looking to, you know, make our events and our education bigger and better, right? We're not always just doing new products, but we're looking at how do we develop, um, you know, better ways of, of, you know, communicating to our members and adding value. So, yeah, I mean, I think it, I don't know how innovative, I know there's a lot of great organizations that are doing this, but I do feel like when you hardwired into not just your culture documents, but then how you meet um, to day to day and using those tools, um, I think it does give people um, a way to, to contribute in that way. And I, it's been very successful for us. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, um, when I started working with you at NAQ, um, which I think was in 2017, you were already starting to have a, a major virtual component of your annual meeting, NAQ Next. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, you know, those numbers, those virtual attendees were, you know, trending up, certainly not where they're at today. That puts you in a position to really be prepared um, in a way for the pandemic that not a lot of other organizations were. Can you talk to us a little bit about what, what started moving you towards the virtual component of NACU Next and then how did you fare during the pandemic? How did those trends kind of change with the necessity of meeting virtually? Sure. So we actually started a virtual component of our meeting back in, I think it was the first year that I was there. So it was 2016 um, that we started. Actually, no, I take that back. Um, they were actually experimenting that with even before I came. Um, so that was uh, like 2014, 2015. And I think it really came about um, because many of our professionals have been telling us in, in, in our surveys and, you know, feedback that we get that it was getting harder and harder and fast forward 10 years, almost 10 years later to get away from work and to get, you know, to get funding. You know, one of the challenges that our professionals have is that they have, you know, traditionally not been given a lot of, of professional development dollars in their budget, unlike some of other healthcare professions, um, you know, who automatically get that, Right. And so we kind of knew that that was a trend already. And so we were experimenting with uh, sort of a virtual component where we would live stream potentially like two, you know, I think the first year, like a couple sessions, like keynote, we just experimented. And so we could, you know, kind of people could register to hear the keynote at no charge. Right. And yeah. then we said, oh, that worked. People liked it. I bet they'll pay for it. So then we kind of did a uh, some, you know, kind of did some experimentation with that. And people are like, yeah, we want to be there. We want we'll pay for this. We just can't get there. So then we started having sort of, you know, kind of a package, an on-demand package that people could do. Um, and and then, yeah, I mean, we we already had a relationship with a, with a vendor. I think that was, that was key to our success. Um, many, many people 
had not. And so they were, you know, trying to, to build that relationship and get contracts signed and all of that. And we already had a vendor um, and that relationship. So that was important. And then we had to change our processes quite a bit to move to content production that was all virtual and not live. So we would pretty much just stream the content, but our production for our content was still very much live, uh, in-person driven. So the way that we work with our subject matter experts, the number of hours that we had um, for like our content specialists versus our meeting planners, like all of that had to be reworked from a resource standpoint, because now we were going to basically produce a show, so to speak, right? I'm using air quotes, right? Nobody can see me, but um, we had to produce a whole show. So that was, you know, we had to kind of really look at our resources and shift that, but we fared very well. We, um, I, I think in our first in 2020, we ended up, um, you know, getting around uh, almost 1,600 um, virtual attendees. Um, as And so that was up from, from the year before. And then this year, fast forward to 22, uh, we had over 5,000. So yeah, and that's a, I mean, that's a pretty significant growth over where you were pre-pandemic. Um, yeah, we were probably pre-pandemic. We were about 600 live and maybe we were creeping up on just having just as many virtual. Mm-hmm. So we were starting to tip, get to the tipping point where we would have more virtual than live. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think when we look at that extraordinary growth, when I started working with you, you were about 4.5 million in top line revenue. Um, and are you somewhere in the range of 12 million at this point? We Yeah, we have a 2023 budget of around uh, a little bit 12.5. Yeah. So and we're only talking about five years here. So, right. you know, that you've, you've nearly tripled um, that top line revenue in the 12 years. And a lot of that was very planned, very methodically planned over the course of time through your strategic planning process and your annual planning process and your operational planning process. And um, obviously you had to deliver the good. So part of what NACU was able to do on the education side that I think was extraordinarily, um, and and your uh, division was obviously involved in all of this going along the way was you started to create this framework the professional framework for healthcare quality. And you pull that through to different products like a professional assessment and then new educational programming. You're working on micro-credentialing. And this is all, you know, in addition to being the certifying body for the profession as well. So this is on top of your um, your core business at the time was obviously certification, professional certification. Then you started layering on um, more and more detail, creating more and more standards for the the profession. Can you talk to us a little bit about that that process and how it's turned into you know growth, specifically in your area, which is serving mostly individuals, to yeah. coming up to around nine million dollars. Yeah, I would say that you know one of the things that this our organization I think took advantage of was really to own the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we had a certification, right, that from 1984, it's been our core business. So we've been a certifying body um, and to some degree a membership organization. But what we really wanted to become was the trusted resource and the home for professionals throughout their career. And so we had pieces of that. We had a certification that was foundational. We had some competency modeling that we were starting to work on that was more advanced. Uh, we had some foundational content, but it wasn't really aligned to anything. 
So we kind of had a mishmash. And what we really wanted to do was, you know, if we were going to bring people to uh, make you, not just for certification, but to bring them to us to that as that trusted resource, they needed to see themselves in that work. And so we needed to show them what a full competency model would look like. So many professions, especially those who follow a, a traditional career path of undergrad and grad and you know all of that kind of thing, they have a lot of those curriculums in place. And we did not. So we really, you know, we got to work and and we said we need that as the foundational piece. Then everything we build um, from an education standpoint can be built on top of that and we can link it back. So it's a very practical, it's what people need to know. And then you can use that to, to get people to understand how their, their work relates to the competency framework and then how they want to grow and develop. And then people can start to see themselves and potential career paths. And that's really um, the work that we've been doing. And, and then that sort of is that flywheel, Stephanie, our CEO likes to say, for people coming back over and over again um, to their professional association, which is what we're here to be. Yeah, because we essentially, I mean, I think every professional association wants to be of service to their members across the span of their career. Right. And so, you know, one of that, one of the challenges is continuing to provide value to them after certification. And so now and certification, certification maintenance obviously provides value as well. Um, but what direction is the, uh, is your division working mm -hmm. towards right now? Where are you heading? Yeah, so we are definitely heading in that developing that career pathway. Um, and obviously, certain types of products and services are going to fall on that career pathway, right? Um, and and really helping people to see themselves on that pathway. So how do we how do we take what we have? Um, I would say sort of I'm not going to say locked away, but you know we have our competency framework. We have a lot of resources that are uh, you know behind firewalls and you know in a learning management system. We're really just trying to bring that um, much more front and center so people can, you know, again, understand what the framework is, where they are, what kind of career path they might be able to have. Some other professions have done this. Um, human resources and, and others have sort of brought this, this competency framework and the way that people come to you to life, right, in a visual way. I definitely think that's part of it. And then the other part of it for my division specifically is to create those new products. And so we have a, a foundational uh, credential, which is excellent, but we want to build our credentialing portfolio, um, not necessarily all high stakes exams, right? Because that's not what everybody needs. Right now, the pain is people need the more advanced skill sets to, to develop in healthcare quality. We have a lot of data that tells us while our workforce has foundational competencies and a lot of them, their CPHQ are, are um, are uh, performing at higher ends of that competency framework. The great, we have a lot of data on that. We still have a long way to go um, to build those competency levels so people can continue to be successful and organizations can be successful in their career. So credentialing products um, are definitely our number one priority and really um, skill development. So getting into, into that space and then figuring out how those could potentially build up to more advanced type of um, programs um, is really where we're focused on. So moving from foundational to, to that advanced, uh, proficient and advanced is, is really where our group is headed the next uh, three years. Yeah. So during the pandemic, you really didn't miss a beat in terms of growth, obviously. And, and which is not to say that you didn't like have some adjustment to do at the beginning of the pandemic, like everybody and, 
and you're kind of learning about a, a new way of, of doing business, you know, remotely with your staff and with your, you're communicating with your leaders and your members. Um, but you did an extraordinary job with that, staying in touch with them, especially since many of your uh, leaders and members um, converted to frontline staff. They have nursing backgrounds, many of them, not all of them. Um, so they were in a, a real different place at the beginning of the pandemic than they had maybe been pre-pandemic. How did your communication with your members and your leaders change during the pandemic? And are there any aspects of that change that you're continuing forward with that turned out to be a better way to communicate? Yeah. I mean, I think that you have to, you have to understand where you're, where the psychology of your members are at whatever time that they're dealing with certain types of issues or crisis. I mean, that's your job as, as the industry professional association. So your communication needs to match the mood and what's going on because you have to remain relevant to them. So absolutely. I mean, our communications, you know, we didn't send maybe as many, you know, emails that were talking about our awesome products as we would have. Um, we definitely got softer in the way that we, you know, discuss certain things. Um, you know, we have webinars, learning labs, we call them uh, every month. We, we sort of switch that content to be less about like, here's some hard skills, hard hitting data analytics to a little bit more softer. We did some uh, social emotional learning. Uh, we did, you know, some other types of, of content. We, we weave that into Make You Next quite a bit as well, uh, which is the, our conference we talked about a little bit earlier especially that fall of the first year of the pandemic. I mean, it was, you know, we, we had a lot of, um, of sessions that were just about like keeping, you know, inspirational and keeping people's, you know, spirits and, and hope. <laughs> That's what we needed to do. So a lot of our communications are that. We also got a lot just, you know, tighter on, you know, this is the action we need, or this is, you know, you know no long emails with a bunch of stuff, right? People don't have time for that anymore. Um, so I, I definitely think our communications has has tightened up from that perspective, and we've carried a lot of those um, uh, lessons learned into how we communicate now. You and I, over the course of the time that we have knowing each other and working together, have talked at various times about change and managing change. And I, I know that you went through a lot of change when we were working with CHEST, and then you've certainly gone through a lot of change also working with NACU. Um, and some of this change is certainly market changed a lot with NACU. Um, I know in Chest you did a lot on the digital technology side, and there was a lot of change during for the technology that you were working with, and you're still involved with that in NACU. Um, what advice do you have for other association executives who right now feel like you know that everything is changing and they're having a hard time kind of getting their heads around that and keeping up and keeping their teams moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know if I have a magic bullet <laughs> for that particular, uh, like some great piece of advice. I mean, I believe very much in you got to control the controllables. Um, so there's a lot that you can't control. I've actually, interestingly enough, did a, a quick exercise uh, just a couple of weeks ago about like putting things into category. Again, I use tools, I use quality things. I, I try to organize. It's kind of my way of dealing with the world. But um I put together sort of a list of things in lots of different categories, everything from work to life to school to anything you could think of. And I started to just write down what are the things I can control and what are the things I can't control. And then the things I can control, which a lot of times is just how I react to situations or how my staff reacts to situations. Um, you know, I, I think about how, I, how I'm going to manage that, how I'm going to approach that. And I really just let all that other stuff go. I mean, you have to, because there's, 
again, there's only so much that you can change and you can control. I also think from a change management perspective, you just, you have to normalize that. What people were, was, what people were hired to do even a year ago or two years ago or 20 years ago, we have a lot of, of staff who are, who are longtime association professionals. And that's wonderful. Like we're really glad that, that they have devoted their life to associations. This is my life's passion as well. However, what, what we hired people to do and what we need them to do today is a very different thing. And we have to normalize that. It's not bad. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with that, you know, what, what they're doing. It's just, we need something different. And people are either, I always say this, either have a skill or will to do it. And sometimes you need to train them up and they can stay. And sometimes you won't be able to, and they don't have the will to do that. And you have to make changes. So I think it's, you know, control the controllables and then really start to maybe use some other tools. I've used Ninebox. I've used other type of leadership tools where you start to really say, you know, how do I, how do I look at my workforce differently? What do they need? And how do I, how do I get them to where they need to go? Or in some cases, there won't be people, they won't go with you. And, and sometimes, again, you have to make those hard changes um, as, an, as a group. You know, a lot of the executives that I am working with right now, um, kind of across industries of associations, are talking about the change, the actual change in, in I would say, the, the sensibility of the workforce or our employees, um, the way that they look at their jobs has changed since the pandemic. This seems, I think, somewhat natural. Um, I would say, in general, I would characterize it. Um, the feedback that I'm getting is that they're uh, maybe employees are feeling a little less flexible um, than they did before. We're also hearing a lot about personal priorities in a way that we didn't hear before that that the workforce is kind of weighing, you know, what is it that they want from their job and their career and what's the work-life balance that they're seeking, you know, kind of to achieve. And I'm wondering if you're seeing those same things. And if you are, how do you, and this is a really tough question to answer, but how do we maintain a certain level of productivity and still be um, really connected to our workforce and what their personal priorities are at the same time? Sharon, I was really hoping you were not going to ask me this question. No, I was like, uh, if you know the answer to that, can you let me know? Um, no, I think that's, uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We're dealing with that challenge right now. Uh, we are still in a hybrid uh, environment. We're, we're trying to decide, you know, are we bringing people back? Is it more in-person time that we need? Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I think that we, the, the world is different. Uh, Pandora's box is open. We, you know, we, we can't go back, I think. But, but every leadership book <laughs> that you read says that um, productivity is really all about you know, unleashing human potential and getting people to, to, you know, to do the work that they're best suited to do um, with the right resources and, and, you know, and, and then have the ability to do that well. And so I think we have a lot of rules in place, like you have to be at your desk for, you know, this many time. And, you know, we, we have our association professionals wear a lot of hats because we have to, well, maybe we don't, right? Maybe we need to relook at that. Um, so I don't know the answer. It's a hard question. I would say that, you know, always thinking about how to, how to do that, you know, how do I get the most out of my, my folks and how do they feel that they're being productive? I would say making sure they understand how their job, you know, and what they're doing from a results. Like I try to talk about results, how that applies to the larger mission. And as long as they feel aligned, then 
you know, my hope is that they will self-regulate and be productive. Like even if they do need to, you know, take their dog for a walk in the middle of the day and they, they want to come back and do an hour later, like at the end of the day, I'm totally fine with that as long as we are still getting our results. So I think if we think about results first and then how our workforce can help us achieve that, then you manage to that and, and maybe let some of the other stuff go that we've traditionally been sort of caught up with. Yeah. And it, you know, I think we're still, it almost feels like the pandemic's never going to end. Right. But it, I do think we're still in, in some ways in the center of the storm related to how it's going to overall impact workforce trends, but not even workforce trends, real estate trends, right? All of these right. things that changed pretty dramatically during the pandemic, they're not shifting back quickly at this point yet. And that may be partially because we still have, you know, these periods of a high COVID, right? Where the trend, mm-hmm. the transmission rate is high and we're pulling back a little bit and, and being careful. So I don't know if, I, well, I, what I'll say is I, I can't certainly project where we're going to end up on this and what the workforce is really going to look like when we're past the post-traumatic stress of the pandemic and, you know, we feel like we're on firm ground again. Um, I think when you combine the pandemic with just generational trends with workforces, you know, it's a really different world that we're emerging from because they, even though I think millennials were the majority of the workforce back in like 2016 or 17, something like that, um, I don't think we were fully feeling the impact of just the millennials being our um, predominant workforce. So not only um, employees of our association, but then also the majority of our members you know, or maybe not the majority of our members, but the majority of our members industry workforce. Yeah. We have like four generations now is Z in there too. I mean, four or five, like it's a, it's right. It's a big workforce, different values, um, different strategies. I don't think a one size fits all um, is going to work anymore. Everybody has to be at their desk. Everybody has to do that. Um, You know, I I think you, I think it's really, honestly, if you manage to results and performance, you know, maybe that's the way to go, right? Like yeah. I know there's there's a fairness, right? There's HR and there's fairness and there's all of that. But, you know, I think we we could probably as association professionals do a better job of, I believe, of thinking of that first. Um, there's, yes, absolutely human aspect to it. And there's, you know, we, we want to be kind. We want to be, you know, all of those things. But I think yeah. if, if, if people are performing, then it's fine. They want to come in one day a week and work at home for, great. Let's make that happen, right? Maybe we go to four-day work weeks, right? Finally do that as a, as a society because we want to value, um, you know, more of our personal time. And at the end of the day, we probably can be more productive. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's, and I also think as leaders, you know, at least in my role, I've been, you know, $12 million is a much smaller association than many of uh, many of you know the listeners of this podcast, but you know I would say I played a pretty heavy player coach role um, as I built the department, and then I would say even as a vice president, I, I do that now. But I would say I definitely have to move away from that, um, and so much more of my time is going to be coaching and developing, and then growing the business instead of you know kind of in the day to day. And so I think it is going to take all of us leveling up and all of us thinking about you know what our role should be. And, you know, if you're doing a lot of doing, doing stuff, we call it task Island here at NACU. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in task Island, you better find a boat, get yourself off of that because you're going to have to spend a lot more time developing talent and thinking about how you, you work on change management across the organization. And if you're a vice president or executive, 
you should be spending 70, 80% of your time there, not, you know, doing some of the day-to-day work. So you as a leader have really grown as NACU has grown and as you've advanced in your, you know, your positions at, at NACU to become vice president. Do you have like role models or leaders that you read about that you go, yeah, that's kind of, that feels right to me, or I really admire that person? I do. Um, I, oh, maybe I didn't put it down. Well, I actually had a couple, I wrote some things down, but so I actually have two. I'm one that I'll say is more traditional and I'm definitely not brown nosing here uh, for anybody who listens, but, um, and then I have another one that's probably non, a little bit non-traditional. Um, but I definitely uh, very much um, respect and uh, our CEO, Stephanie Mercado. Um, she has grown with this organization as well. I think one of the things that she's had to do and I've been taught how to do is how to, you have to reinvent yourself um, and you have to spend time thinking about that. What does that mean? My, you know, I have different expectations now. So what are my behaviors? What do I have to do differently? How do I spend my time? What kind of level of emotional intelligence do I have to have now as a leader? And she's done that too. You know, she uh, started, I think she's nine years in, almost 10 years at NACU uh, with a, you know, an infant <laughs> starting out. And now she's got almost a 10 year old and she's balanced that, uh, all of that, um, you know, ups and downs. But certainly I've been really impressed with how she has to reinvent herself to be able to um, give what the organization and of course her boss, the board of directors, what they need and what they want. Um, and so I've had to do that as well. And that's what I tell all the people that will work with me and report to me and my peers that, you know, again, back to my comment earlier, you, you're not going to be able to um, to grow if you're not constantly reinventing and, and looking at your skill set and saying, what can I contribute now? Um, the other, I, the other one that I have to say um, is, I might get his name wrong, but uh, Vladimir, uh, uh, the the Ukrainian president. Oh, Zelensky. Zelensky, yes. Um, I have to say him, and that's kind of a, a different one. I know that people might be like, really? Um, I feel like, you know, he, he actually had a very different career path, <laughs> uh, did not set out uh, to do the job that he is in right now, uh, much like an association professional. Um don't set out on that career path and then they find themselves in in leadership roles and, and what a what a leadership you know role that he is in and the world stage um that he's in but I, i've been very impressed that you know he's kind of stayed true to himself um and he is like absolutely you know the determination that comes from him and and what you need as a leader to keep going and to inspire and to you know do the tough things every single day while still trying to be true to yourself and your family um on a world stage is amazing to me. Um, and I've been very impressed with um, how he's shown up. And I think um, that's important um, to me when I look at any leader. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I can see that with you, Jennifer, too, because one of the things about Zelensky that is so impressive is that he 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 didn't flee. He's in the trenches right. with his team, essentially, right. which is something that's very true of you as well. That yeah. you're you're not abandoning them. You're in the t- in the trenches with them and kind of bringing them along with you as you're you know continuing to advance, which I think is is really wonderful. To to kind of end our conversation today, tell me where do you think healthcare quality is going? What what direction are we heading? What's on the horizon? Oh, um, so that's a great question. Uh, so we are already we've been on the value uh, journey, right? People, consumers want value in their healthcare, meaning cost, and they want 
outcomes, right? They want, uh, they want a good experience. They want the right care at the right time. Um, and that's what they want. And so we've already been going down this pathway and, you know, um, the pandemic just, you know, exacerbated that, right? I mean, and so I think that um, we're, we're moving to value, which is going to take organizations to take a very, very, very hard look at, at the way that they're organized, their workforce in order to deliver that type of care um, and that type of value, uh, which is probably different than the workforce they have today. Uh, healthcare quality professionals, a plug for them, of course, is always that they're at the center of that and um, I think are extremely important to this transformation. I think also, you know, we've already seen this, but care is is being delivered outside of 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 the you know the the, the four walls of a of a system, and so you know there's many many more people who are taking advantage of the you know the telehealth, the telemedicine, home care, um, all of that, and that is gonna that is not only obviously changing the business model of healthcare, but it's changing um, the workforce needs. Healthcare and all of the professions that make up healthcare. I mean, I think associate, I think association, healthcare associations are probably the largest of associations. I mean, healthcare is what 25% of our GDP. So it's a big workforce. And so there's a lot of transformation that has to happen there. And that's, you know, where we uh, at NICU think we can make a, a huge valuable contribution um, is to workforce development and to the people that are doing the work. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a very interesting next uh, three to five years. I think there's going to be more action and less talking about the need to go to value. And there's going to be more action and how that actually happens. And, and we're here to, to help, you know, our professionals and the, the industry of healthcare do just that. That's wonderful. So thank you, Jennifer, so much for being with us. I have a feeling that there's some people are going to want to learn more about uh, Plus Delta and CBAR and some of these yeah. tools. Um, if they want, if our listeners want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Sure. Absolutely. You can uh, email me uh, anytime, uh, jpitts at nahq.org. Um, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me there. And uh, yeah, happy to uh, answer any questions or help support anyone in their journey. That's excellent. Well, if you'd like to meet leaders like Jennifer, I'd like to suggest that you consider joining .org community. .org community connects you with a vibrant network of association executives and partners, and you can learn more about us at .orgcommunity.com. You can also read Jennifer's article focusing on excellence, putting NACU ahead of change at .orgsource.com in our blog library. Thank you everybody for listening to this podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode and discovered tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com or visit www.orgsource.com to find out how to keep your organization on track to Association 4.0.